going to move into our, our scripture reading for today, Luke 14, uh, 12 to 14. That'll be on the screen, but you can have a moment to, to find that in your Bibles. And we're going to be looking at what happens before and after this in our message today. But the, the focal point is here in Luke 14, starting at verse 12. God's word we read. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, well, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." God, blessed for understanding that reading from His Word. So we are entering our second week now of exploring what it means to be a Mission Edge Church, and we're moving already kind of into the second phase because our, our small groups will be getting started on some of this as well for our four-week series, uh, where they'll look at some passages of Scripture and tie that into some thoughts and ideas and even into some, maybe some things that'll feed into goals and plans for our church's next chapter. And so if you haven't been in a small group but would like to participate for this, uh, you're certainly welcome to join in. And we've got morning, afternoon, and evening to to choose from. And uh, we've got uh, Derek on Mondays in the afternoon, but not this Monday for the holiday, right? Okay, so starting the following Monday for that. Uh, But Art's on Tuesday evening. Oh, I lost Art. But anyway, he's on Tuesday evening (laughs) at 7.30. And uh, and then Erica on Thursday morning at uh, our Tuesday evening for our Thursday morning for Erica at 10, all here at the the church building. So just wanted to put a plug in for that so that uh, people know what's coming. Um, But for this morning, we're going to continue with these six mission markers, which are these important priorities or these characteristics of Mission Edge churches. And we began last Sunday with the first, which was living the Jesus way when gathered and scattered. And so that focused on how a church, kind of like a beating heart, draws its people in to renew and prepare them before propelling them then back out into the world to be like Jesus. And that message is easy to find on our website or our YouTube channel if you missed it. Uh, And then we're heading today into the second. But here's all six so you know where we're going. We had live the Jesus way, radiate hospitality, have fluency in the good news, and then embody the good news, embrace partnerships, And then the sixth one is practice contextual responsiveness, which might sound like gobbledygook, but that's understanding your your neighborhood and community so that you can engage with it in a way that makes sense to those people in a relevant kind of way. So those are are where we're, we're headed through this series. And there's two points I wanted to give early on about what these mission markers are about that might be helpful as we get to the others. And first is that these are not in order of importance. Okay, it's not that there's, these are the, this is the priority list. And one way to think of it is if you can think of an old wagon wheel like this one, uh, it has six spokes. They all go out from a central hub. And if someone was asked, well, which of these spokes is the most important? Well, there's not really an answer to that because if you remove any one of those, then the wheel would lose its balance and its integrity. Sooner or later, it would fall apart. And so we talked about gathering and scattering first last week, not because that's most important, but because it, it helps us remember that this gathering and scattering aspect uh, that we're going to learn about is, applies to all the other markers too. We're always talking about both things. We're always talking about what we do together in church community and then 
the ways that we then are the church as we go home and to work and to play and wherever else we go. So there's not, there's not a, it's not a priority list. It's not an order of importance. The second thing, and it's connected, is that the six markers require and reinforce each other. So if you think of the, the fruit of the Spirit, which I don't think we can come back to too often from Galatians 5 here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't get very far in developing some of these fruit without the others, right? I can't call myself loving if I lack kindness and goodness. It's not going to work. Peace leans heavily on faithfulness. Patience goes nowhere without self-control. And so when we look at these markers, we see that, you know, we may see we need a little bit more of this maybe, and maybe we're a little stronger in that, but the aim is to develop and maintain these together because they're interdependent. They reinforce each other. So that's just a little bit more about how the mission markers work. And so now we want to get into today's about radiating hospitality. And I'm going to start in Luke 14 this week instead of ending off on what Jesus had to say. We'll start there. And so this passage is sandwiched in between Jesus is attending a physical banquet and telling a parable about a different sort of banquet. And we'll touch on the whole thing with a focus in the middle. So Jesus was invited to this banquet at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the faction of priests who were extremely dedicated to obeying the religious law as they understood it from the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. And some Pharisees ended up as fierce opponents of Jesus because they did not think he was following the law properly. Because Jesus understood and taught the scriptures with a greater emphasis on its larger principles, which were rooted in loving God and loving people. Some of the Pharisees were much more legalistic. They had a kind of a rules or rules kind of attitude, and it was on the one hand sometimes very light on mercy and compassion, and on the other hand also sometimes excused things that were clearly wrong or abuses, because that's what legalism does. On the one hand, it's harsh against some people, and on the other hand, it usually has loopholes in it that other people can exploit. And so that's why principles tend to be better than specific rules in many cases. So just one really quick aside about Pharisees, okay? Um, Because I just learned this recently, and I think it's actually an important thing to spread around. Let's not use Pharisee as a synonym for religious jerk, uh, sometimes that's kind of happened within the church. That's been the like, oh, Pharisee. Like, that's what it means. Like, this, you're, you're legalist, you're harsh, you're whatever. But Jesus did have some very harsh words for some Pharisees in the New Testament. But there were also Pharisees who sided with Jesus. There were quite a lot of Pharisees among the ranks of the early church who were the, among the first converts to the, the church. But moreover, when Not long after Jesus died, the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself were destroyed in a Jewish rebellion. The Romans came and the rebellion failed. They they destroyed the whole thing. And it was really the Pharisees were the reason that the the Jewish religion kind of survived that. They were the ones who kind of held it all together. And so many modern-day Jews consider themselves really to be the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees. And so... If we use Pharisee as an insult, that's, that's not really something they normally appreciate. So we don't, we don't really have any need for that kind of unkindness to continue in the church, which hasn't always had a good crack record of being kind to our Jewish friends. So not a hospitable thing to do. So if we want to call someone a legalist, we'll just call them a legalist. And if we want to mention that Jesus was feuding with some Pharisees, then sure, we'll say he was feuding with some Pharisees, but it's, uh, it's not, a, not a term that should get thrown around as just a generic insult for those we don't like who are very religious. All right, the aside is over. We're back to what we were talking about. 
Jesus is at a banquet. He's at a table. It's filled with Pharisees, important, prominent Pharisees. And Jesus took this opportunity to challenge their thinking a bit. He kind of wanted to see if he could nudge them away from this legalism that often was at the heart of their conflicts. And so he sees a man there who's sick. This man has fluid buildup in his body, the kind that is common with certain types of cancer or other conditions. And Jesus says, so is it, uh, is it lawful for me to heal this man or not on the Sabbath? Because that's what it was that day. And Pharisees, not surprisingly, were very strict about the Sabbath rules, including the rule that no work should be done. And uh, it's actually, modern-day Jews have uh, versions of these same rules, but they've kind of upgraded them technologically even. So there are still Jewish people today who are devout, and they will not flick a light switch on or off on a Saturday. They won't touch a an elevator button on a Saturday because that's the way that they've translated those rules down through the years. So this, they took this very seriously, and many still do. And nobody would answer Jesus' question about this, though. They, they were not sure what the right answer for that was going to be. So Jesus went ahead and healed the man. And then he reminded the Pharisees there that if their own child were in trouble or one of their animals needed rescuing on the Sabbath, then they would surely go ahead and take care of that. Sabbath rules were not meant to cause people to fail to show basic love or care for others. But still nobody said anything back to Jesus, and maybe the atmosphere was getting a little tense at this point, but maybe some of them were also chewing thoughtfully on some of this. So then Jesus, he keeps going, and he just decides to hit them with a new thing. And he says, look, I've kind of seen the little game that you all played when you came in about who was going to sit where. Because at a, a formal you know, banquet like this, the host would sit, of course, at the place of honor at the end of the table. And then the closer people were sitting to the host, that signified how honored you were. So if you could, you could easily look at a banquet table and you could see who are the most important and most favored people in the room because they're the ones sitting closest to the host. And Jesus said, do you know it's actually a really bad strategy to try to grab the closest seat you can to the host? Because what happens if somebody more important than you shows up a little late and then the host kicks you out of your, his spot and, uh, or kicks you out of your spot, give it to him, and then has to send you down to the end of the table? Like that would be embarrassing. So he said, you know what, it'd be smarter. Pick a spot near the bottom of the table, the end of the table, the unimportant end. And then the host will come in and he'll say, oh, friend, you don't belong down there. I should move you up a little bit, you know, and you'll be honored in front of the others instead of humiliated. But this wasn't just a good strategy for your social standing. Jesus meant this as a lesson about the kingdom of God. He said, look, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Don't try to look good to earn the admiration of people. Do good so that God will honor you. And then he gives an example of what a good thing to do would be. And that's where we hit verses 12 to 14. He says, don't just throw a dinner, a party, a banquet for your friends, your family, for your rich neighbors in order to get invited to their banquets or increase your status or some other reason that serves your purposes. Invite the people nobody wants or includes. Invite the the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And he says, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And this is not the only place in the New Testament that Jesus teaches us that we only get rewarded once for things. Like you can kind of pick earth or heaven. You can get a reward from people or from God, but you don't get both. So if you do something with the intention of improving your situation in the here and now, I'm going to make myself richer or more famous or more influential or whatever, well, then that's the reward. You just, you got it. If it came from people, you've got it now. Uh, And as they say, you can't take those rewards with you. 
But when you do things in quiet obedience, help in behind-the-scenes ways, when you give anonymously, when you help people who cannot return the favor, well, Jesus says God rewards this later at the resurrection of the righteous. The renewed world yet to come where Jesus reigns and sin and death are banished. The world that doesn't end, that's where your reward comes for those things. All right, so what do Jesus' banquet instructions have to do with us here? And I think maybe it helps to back up just a little bit and recognize that before the pandemic even began, we were becoming more and more isolated and lonely as Western society. Right? This has been happening since the television was invented, so this has been going on a long time. But uh, smartphones certainly helped us replace people with screens at a rate that we'd never seen before. And if you track the numbers over time, the number of friends that people have, how often they talk to their neighbors, the amount of involvement in uh, things like community groups and clubs and civic associations and churches, these have all been declining since the 70s. And we're a long way into this now. And the pandemic, of course, drastically worsened this, and in certain ways, it hasn't improved for some people since then. You know, it took a big hit and then maybe came back a little, but not to the place that it was for many people. And we also know that people who are disconnected have a wide variety of poor outcomes. Their physical health, their mental health, and their, their spiritual well-being are all, all suffer. Loneliness contributes heavily to things like suicide or what are called deaths of despair, both in younger and in older people. It's such a problem that both uh, the United Kingdom and, and Japan have now created a, a ministry of loneliness. They have ministers of loneliness in their governments to try and work to combat uh, this public health issue in their countries. Just kind of a funny name. You almost feel like you should feel bad for the minister of loneliness, but you know that's, <clears throat> that's their job there. And so as... As human beings, we long to be known, to be accepted, to have purpose. We're built for community, but we've been abandoning it and losing those community connections for generations now. And for some, it is busyness, the pace of of life, the demands of life continue to to grow. You know, we had this great theory 50 years ago where all this new technology was going to help us work much more efficiently so people would only have to work 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, four days a week or whatever. And instead, we got the worst of both worlds. We got all the technology helps people work much more efficiently and do a whole lot more, and we also work more. (laughs) Like, every generation for the last three or four, it's been the same pattern. More hours at work by the household. More hours parenting by the parents. More hours doing this. And I don't know where all the hours can keep coming from at that rate because there aren't nearly enough. And one of the things that gets cut quickly in that is community friendships, those things outside of our immediate household and demands of work and life. And so the tendency today is that you see so many people who we've made our homes into these little fortresses. Like, right, we kind of venture out into the world like it's, you know, hostile territory. And so we go to work and we shop or whatever it is. And then as soon as we can, we retreat back into the safety of those four walls. But for some people, the lack of connection and uh, is due to not feeling wanted. It's due to not feeling valued. It's due to not being invited. So there are people who do want relationships with their neighbors. They want community connections. They're not sure, though, where they can go or where they would be welcomed. And so this is the challenge really given to us in this second mission marker, which is to radiate hospitality. And the the explanation given for this one in the, the, the material that comes with the Mission Edge process says that in a world with far too much unkindness and isolation, 
Mission Edge churches are composed of people who extend welcome and kindness to all who cross their paths. And the word kind, Greg Jones explains, comes from the word kin or the word kindred. Right? And kin are those people who are close to us. They're like family. And so hospitality is really about welcoming all that we meet as family, as kindred. And in welcoming all as kin, we are living out kindness, kindness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Hospitality is viewing all of life as God's table, where we get to welcome others to come and to sit and to be family and to know and to be known and to love and to be loved. So just like in today's passage, Jesus did a lot of ministry work around a table. The hospitality of a table was a really important tool in his work. The early church echoed this. They gathered, um, you know, a lot, spent a lot of their time around tables in each other's homes. They had what were called love feasts, where everybody came, they had food, they had fellowship, they, they laughed. Sometimes it sounds like it got a little rowdy, occasionally a little too rowdy, and we have letters about that. But they shared this food and they fellowship, and then they would conclude with the Lord's Supper as part of their gathering. And so we also have tables. We have, it's not, a, it's not an uncommon tool. We have physical tables in our homes. We have physical tables in this church building. We can invite people to gather around them. And if we get just a little bit more metaphorical with this, we also have the ability to invite people into spaces and activities where they can experience welcome and familiarity and love, this kindness. And Jesus' teaching here challenges us to not simply use our tables, meta- metaphorical or physical tables, to host those who are closest to us, those that we, or those that perhaps we think will help us or will benefit us in some way. Jesus calls on us to invite those who don't get many invitations, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Elsewhere, Jesus calls them the least of these, not because they're less important or less valuable, but because the world often treats them this way and overlooks them. And in some ways, I feel like we've gotten better in our world when it comes to, these are many of these, the Jesus lists are, are disabilities, and there are still many struggles and barriers to those uh, with disabilities, but sometimes I feel like the people we overlook are also those who just don't fit for other reasons, like it, uh, due to just awkwardness or, or depression or, uh, you know, neuroatypical qualities or these just kinds of things that just, you just don't line up easily with other people. And so this is the challenge of who to invite around your table. And let's be clear, because Jesus doesn't say, like, be okay if they come to your table. Like, that's, that's different. That's a baseline that you can't get to where we're going if you won't do that. But that's not, that's not the goal. He says, set a table for them. Invite them to that table. It's not enough to say, all welcome on your church sign, and then be like, okay, done. This radiating hospitality involves actively seeking to gather disconnected people. I have a a short video that's going to be played in a moment that connects to this a little bit. And I thought it was timely because this is part of a big ad campaign uh, that actually concluded during the Super Bowl where they ran two ads about Jesus in the U.S. where they do the fancy ads. You probably saw an ad for Greco Pizza or something if you watched it here. But uh, these ads were... Very well done. Uh, Some Christians aren't sure it was worth $20 million to air two minutes worth of them during the big game, but the money's already spent, so we might as well watch one of them. So I'm going to put that up here. A caring man took a walk. 
Everywhere he looked, people suffered. Anxiety ran high, hope dwindled, hatred rose. His neighbors had lost trust in the system and in each other. I need to do something, he thought. I'll bring them together and feed them. Around the dinner table, they can talk and see how much they have in common. Shared struggles, shared joy, shared pain. So he prepared a feast and invited all into his home. But some refused to sit at his table because they chose to only see differences. He was heartbroken because he wanted everyone to eat and be filled, not with food and wine, but with compassion. That some of the imagery there resonates with us because doesn't it feel like the world is spinning out of control at times? That there's, there's just too much division and confusion and anger and a lack of civility and trust. And it seems like, well, what on earth is one person going to do to turn that tide? But here is the good news that Jesus gives us in this passage because there is something that you as one individual person on this earth can do about it because you can invite people to your table. And that's not a joke. That's not a small thing. That's not insignificant. That is a powerful way that Jesus has given us and commanded us to bring some of his light into this world. So on a practical level, let's consider what it might look like for us to radiate hospitality. And we can start with when we gather, because we're going to do gather and scatter with all of these. And so are there things, you could ask questions about this. This is about kind of starting to stir up our thoughts because we want to share them together as we work our way through this process. You know, are there things we do now that we could do differently to make them much easier to invite people to, make them much more understandable? You know, a worship service that's more accessible, uses language that's easier to to grasp or explains itself a little better to people who aren't familiar. Right? Do we build in more chances to get to know each other the way uh, Erica started us off with, that, you know, that we kind of lost through the pandemic, and which sometimes people just find a little awkward and we don't always want to do? You know, do we do you know, name tags on arrival that some places do that we've done from time to time? These are, are some of these kinds of things. By the way, we are looking for ushers who could help us uh, greet and assist people and someone to schedule and coordinate the ushers. So if you'd be willing to serve in that way, we would love to hear from you. But of course, the idea is not to have ushers who then look after all of the greeting and helping of other people so that the rest of us don't have to. Because for those of us who call this our church home, we should come expecting to be hosts to those who are new, those who look like they could just use a conversation or a, or a word of welcome. We so Just like you wouldn't throw a party at your home and then have someone there that you've never met and you don't introduce yourself to or you just ignore the whole time. Like hopefully we wouldn't do that in our own homes, but, but we let that happen in church you know, pretty regularly. And then people leave thinking that nobody was interested, nobody cared. And I'm not a natural when it comes to engaging someone I don't know. I, I totally understand why people get nervous about this, why sometimes it takes a fair bit to work up that nerve to just walk over and try to introduce yourself, figure out how to start a conversation without seeming too awkward and weird, and maybe I'm going to make it worse if I go over there, and like all these things run through our heads. But maybe we can agree to expand our comfort zones a little bit 
and say, look, if there's some people over there, look, they're newer to the church than I am, and I don't know their names, I don't know anything about them, that is a problem. All right, what can I do about that? And of course, for those who do come and consistently make that effort to reach out and welcome, I do see that, I'm thankful for that, and it's a great example for the rest of us, and so I appreciate it. And here's another thing to consider as we get ready to start small groups and move toward our visioning day at the end of March. What would be the easiest thing you could invite someone to in a place like this? Right? What could be happening inside these walls in a given week that would meet a community need, that would seem so attractive to people that it would be easy to invite them in? They would want to come. Not necessarily people just like us, not people that we see as being able to help us or meet our needs necessarily, but people who need community and connection, right? the least of these. Right, that's a bit of stirring up about gatherings. Then we should ask how about the hospitality we can radiate as we scatter. Because I don't think Jesus is teaching here that we should never have dinner with our friends or family, you know, we're at our tables, right? That would be the wrong takeaway, I think. But who else could be invited in? When we fill our social calendar, could we leave space for some who are outside of our regular circle? What neighbor or family member or acquaintance seems like they could be lonely or need connection or uh, just... You could gauge with them in just that, that normal human way that is fading. But of course, hospitality goes way beyond who we invite into our homes or out to coffee or those more, I guess, formal ways of doing it. Hospitality is something that we bring with us. One thing that I know I personally need to work on is not getting super tunnel vision about the projects that I'm working on and the tasks that I'm trying to complete, because that's my tendency. And Sometimes those projects are important. Often they work to the benefit of a larger group of people, but they're not more important than the person right in front of me. And they're not more important than the person right in front of you as you make your way through this world either. Each encounter with people around us is an opportunity to show that we think they're valuable, that they're valuable enough to know, valuable enough to want to spend a moment with, valuable enough to be curious about their life. And certainly valuable enough to treat with a generous helping of kindness and patience, even if they're being kind of hard to love in that moment, or if circumstances are stressful. Do you know that there's a lot of wait staff in some restaurants who hate working the Sunday afternoon shift? Like, I don't have a Sunday, I don't have a scientific study with all the numbers on this one, but come across a fair bit of anecdotal evidence in the, over my years that there are people who, they, you know, they work in restaurants and they, they dread the Sunday afternoon church just got out shift because they are expecting to encounter some people like they've encountered before who are cranky or demanding or just extremely stingy with the tips at the end of the, the session. And maybe this will come as a shock, I hope it will, but there are Christians on God's green earth who think that in place of, you know, money for a tip, you could just leave a little gospel tract there or a little pen that says Jesus loves you or something like that. And that's a, that's a great witness on behalf of the church. Okay, like in the very unlikely event that there's anyone here with that misunderstanding, I'll just gently say that no, it does not work well that way. So when we scatter to our homes and our workplaces, to restaurants, to clubs, to rinks, to stores, to parks, we can radiate the hospitality of Jesus by being people who are welcoming, who value other people simply because they are other people created in the image of God. We can do a little something each day to make this impersonal world a little more human. And so we are missionaries when we walk out our front doors or when somebody else walks in. All right, so I want to end by coming back to Jesus 
uh, and, his, and what happened in this chapter because Jesus thought this was important. Okay, this, this kind of hospitality isn't like this optional activity to earn bonus points with God. It, it should, in fact, be a natural outflow of sincere discipleship. Because after Jesus told the Pharisees to invite the least of these and you know, that they'd be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, there's somebody in the crowd who, I don't know if he's paying a lot of attention or not, but he, he kind of chimes in. He hears the resurrection of the righteous part anyway, and he chimes in and says, yeah, won't it be great when we all get to eat the feast of the kingdom of God? And that's the assumption of this very religious crowd, is that they can expect, for being such good rule followers, that they are going to feast at God's heavenly banquet table in the seats of honor one day. And that leads Jesus to telling one of his scary parables, right? Or at least it's a scary parable if you're a religious person. Uh, Because Jesus' parable tells of this man who has this large banquet hall, and he invites all his friends, all the, you know, the people you'd invite to a fancy banquet, uh, the people who are in your social class, the people who can repay you in some way. And he gets ready. And when everything's ready, he sends out his servant to say, okay, tell everybody everything's ready, now they can come. Because back then, you you didn't give people a time to show up. You just said, there's going to be a banquet on this day, and when everything's ready, I'll tell you, and then come on over. So the servant goes out, but nobody will will come. They've all got lame excuses for why they won't go. And so the servant comes back, and the man hears this, and he's angry. And he says, okay, we'll go back out. Go into the alleys. Go into the, the, the side streets. Go into all the sketchy parts of town. And bring the poor, and bring the crippled, and bring the blind, and bring the lame to my banquet. And those people came, but there was still room. So he says, okay, now go out farther out into the world. Go out of this community and into other communities, into the countryside, and bring anyone who will come until this place is full. And the servant went and did that. And once it was full, he closed those doors and he locked them tight so that those who had rejected their invitations could not change their minds later and come back in. And so this parable was meant for those Jewish religious elite who were, they were the first to receive the opportunity to respond to the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus had brought. And Jesus was warning them here that if they reject God's invitation, then they were going to miss out. And instead, God would call to himself the very people that they looked down on, the Gentiles and the Samaritans, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the poor and the crippled and the blind, the religious leaders were putting lesser things like their own power and their own comfort and their own kind of expectations. They were putting those things first. And so they were at risk of not being part of this feast of the kingdom of God at all. It's the scary part, right? And there are two reminders for us in all this too. First, that we should not settle for lesser things ourselves instead of the kingdom of God, because there are lots of perfectly good things that we're meant to enjoy in this world that God's given, but not at the expense of putting him first. And second, people who do put God first don't neglect the least of these. And that includes the lonely and the disconnected and the awkward and the struggling people in our lives and on our streets and in in the community that this church is positioned to serve And so if we don't want anything to do with those unlike us, if we're not interested in situations that might get messy, then we should be a little bit scared of what we have done with God's invitation to us. So I know I took a few twists and turns through all this, so let me give you the big idea in one sentence so you can take it with you this morning, which is simply that Jesus says, invite the least of these to your table. Like if you want to just remember it in one One little chunk. That's what we learned. That Jesus says, invite the least of these to your table. 
That's what the people of a Mission Edge church do to radiate hospitality. And that means, can mean real tables, of course, or other ways of showing people welcome and valuing them. It means official services and programs in our church when we gather, and it means the things that we continue to do when we scatter. And if we are not interested, like these particular Pharisees Jesus was challenging to do better in this passage, well, then our faith is not in a good shape. We need to accept God's invitation to truly know and follow Jesus so we can start being more like him. And that will be a blessing. It will be a wonderful thing for us, and it will be a wonderful thing for those who will be moved to serve once we start living according to the ways of the kingdom of God. So let's come together for our closing hymn. And I think it's got some reminders in us that we would still be lost and hopeless if God hasn't extended his invitation to us, his invitation to be saved and forgiven and receive abundant and eternal life.